it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. On May 5th, pardon me, On May 5, 1993, second graders Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore disappeared from their West Memphis, Arkansas homes. The following afternoon, their nude, beaten, and bound bodies were discovered in a drainage ditch less than a mile away. After a troublesome confession, three local teenagers, later dubbed the West Memphis Three, were arrested, tried, and convicted in early 1994. Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly received life sentences while ringleader Damian Eccles went to death row. Three years later, the documentary film Paradise Lost premiered on HBO and the re- effect on the viewers was dramatic. Many became skeptical of the verdicts and also felt one of the fathers of the victims was a better suspect, John Mark Byers. In Untying the Knot, author Greg Day tells the true story of John Mark Byers and the about-face he made to free the men convicted of the crime. Day exposes the propaganda campaign used to convince a gullible public that Byers was complicit in the deaths of his wife and son. Based on court transcripts and hours of personal interviews, Untying the Knot explores all the case evidence while interweaving dialogues and statements. It traces the life of Byers from his roots in rural Arkansas to his son's murder and the death of his wife to his ultimate imprisonment in 1999. Reveals a man redeemed by prison and whose change of heart changed his life. The book that we're featuring this evening is Untying the Knot, John Mark Byers and the West Memphis Three with my special guest journalist and author, Greg Day. Welcome to the program and thank you for agreeing this interview, Greg Day. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you very much uh, for joining us here. Um, as I mentioned when we discussed, uh, this is a follow-up from last week's show, uh, sort of in response to that program for the incredible interest that this case had at the time, still in, over this period of time sustained by five um, movies or, and or documentary films, all the books, all the discussions and all the still continued interest in Damien Eccles, the West Memphis Three, and all information surrounding it, and still very, very controversial and very, very uh, captivating for the audience worldwide. So let's get to this right away. Let's 
tell us what are the circumstances that you came to be involved in this case and especially involved with uh, Mark Byers, John Mark Byers, and this book. Tell us those circumstances. Yeah, unlike a lot of other people I, who most came through uh, to the, the case through the documentary films Paradise Lost, I had never heard of the films, and I actually had never heard of the crime. Uh, and I was just doing a, a basic intersect, uh, internet walk around to try and find, uh, in fact, what I was interested in were capital cases. Uh, and I came across this case and found that it had a huge repository of uh, evidence that was growing all the time that was being put online for uh, for people's review. And, and of course, their, their feeling was that the West Memphis Three had been wrongly convicted, and I was interested in that as well. So I started picking through the documentations. I eventually saw the two uh, the two films, and I actually saw the second Paradise Lost film first, uh, and that was my first introduction to uh, John Mark Byers. And anybody who's seen that as their first introduction to, to John Mark Byers, I mean, he was terrifying. I mean, it was to me anyway, and uh, I. Uh, I joined the message board and started uh, conversing with the people who were running it, uh, who were three of the people who were featured in the second film. Uh, they, between the, between the second film and these three people, if they, if they don't happen, uh, Damien Eccles and his friends are, will rot in jail. They'll never see the light of day. Uh, but they were very, uh, they were, they were activists from Southern California. and uh, but, but in any event, I had a friend uh, on that message board who knew Mark Byers and thought that he needed somebody to talk to. Uh, so I wrote him a few emails, and uh, he wrote a few back, and then I called him. And I, I had written a lot uh, uh, in different posts on the message boards, and I guess he thought that, uh, that I, I understood his story and he wanted me to tell it. Uh, so that's really – and that was in 2005. Now you mentioned those three activists, so mention their names because they're very pivotal and reoccurring characters in this story. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, we, we used to refer to them as the uh, KGB. Uh, it was Kathy Bakken, uh, Grove Pashley, and Burke Sauls. Uh, Bakken and Sauls were in the film business out in California, and Pashley was a photographer out there, and they were all friends and. Kathy Bakken was doing the uh, the artwork for the first Paradise Lost film, or possibly uh, it was the second Paradise Lost film. And when she got the preview of the film, she, she sent along to Burke Sauls and knowing that he'd be interested in something like this. And and the three of them decided at that point that uh, that the West Memphis Three were innocent, and they started a website uh, and started putting all sorts of original source documentation. Uh, that they were getting people were going to the West Memphis Police Department and actually photocopying things and uh, copying transcribing recordings and putting them up on the internet. So uh, yeah, those those people uh, they didn't start the filming process because there was already one film out when they came together, but uh, they gave it wings. And uh, between Paradise Lost Two and the KGB, uh, that that's what attracted. They all had contacts, you know. Hollywood type context, media people and whatnot. So, uh, and that second film just uh, it, it went off like a like a bomb. Mainly, in my opinion, because of John Mark Myers. He gave them what they didn't have 
prior to that, and that was an alternate suspect. Because you and I both know that when uh, when, when someone's on trial, especially for murder, and uh, they don't really have you know a good alibi, and there's some evidence against them, their best hope for being exonerated is finding an alternate suspect. And John Mark Byers fit the bill perfectly. He was believable. He was a crazy redneck, uh, and uh, he he performed for the cameras. Uh, better than they could have expected. And he, and, and that's Mayor Leverett also latched on to him at that time. And he became the uh, de facto alternate suspect of choice. Well, to be fair, though, I mean, of course, they need somebody ultimately to be a, a suspect if you're going to say that these three are innocent. And certainly, John, Mike, John Mark Byers cooperated. So please elaborate for our audience what you mean by that because you explain about even the cash incentive and why would somebody do something like that well and the offer of money is not exorbitant so tell us the circumstances that they were in and then tell us how and what why was he performing like that what were some other factors in that performance besides being a grieving father if we were to look at it well, start at the beginning. In the end, they, they want to cut this, this, this sum of cash not being exorbitant is a relative thing. Uh, to you and I, it's probably not exorbitant. Um, but the way a lot of these people were living out there, if you had ever driven through the trailer parts where Miss Kelly Baldwin and uh, and Eccles came from, and by the way, this, the, the trailer park was a step up for Eccles, uh, you start to realize that there were people who were on uh, disability or you know, unemployment, they weren't working. They, they, Mark hustled drugs and uh, all for relatively small amounts of money. He was a jeweler by trade, and he had, did have a, a short period of time where he was profitable uh, at that, but it, it, uh, it didn't last. So, uh, but you're right in saying that the, uh, the money was not the big push. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark hires is, he's an attention uh, junkie. And uh, when he, uh, to give you an example, at this one of the hearings out there when the Berlinger and the filmmakers were following him around, uh, he was just going to person to person, uh, just trying to find the last journalist who had a microphone or a camera on. Uh, he wouldn't go home until the last, uh, you know, and, and this was, you know, very shortly after his son's murder. Um, I thought at the time maybe it was cathartic. I don't know, but he, he, he was he was very much. And if you've seen the movies, particularly the second one, uh, the scenes at the graveyard, uh, the burying of the mock graves, there are just these scenes that you can't imagine somebody uh, sitting there like if it was you and there's nobody was holding a camera in front of you, uh, you know, that you would uh, that, that you would be able to perform like that. But but you know, but Mark could. And uh, he, I, I know that seems. Uh, I know it seems like a little bit trite, but uh, it had a, it had a lot to do with. Uh, and then he got angry because once people started accusing him based on his uh, you know his appearances, uh, he started getting angry. He was he was drinking and, and with drugs, and uh, he was by his own admission uh, was heavily under the influence, particularly during the second uh, the second film uh, and. That, that, that changes uh, somebody. But I mean, I can't imagine anything but, uh, at least at that point in time. Later on, 
when he, when he thought he had an alternate suspect and he wanted to join the bandwagon or, or start the bandwagon, uh, I can see it. But at that point, all I, all I see is that he was, uh, he, he, for whatever reason, wanted the attention. Right. What was it in the film? Because, I mean, uh, millions, millions of people, far more people than, than are, they're going to go read the, all the books uh, written about this case, far more People will get their impressions of the cases from the films and the documentaries. And so what in the documentary in the second one, other than Mark Byers acting crazy, because supposedly they're presenting factual information. And what, the interesting what you put in the book is that your book is an examination of facts versus opinion. And when there is going to be an opinion rather than a fact, you're going to speculate that. So we're going to go through that for the people that, that's what they're really, really looking for, and that's what you really provide in this book as well. So let's talk about what the film, if anything, that did in that second film to, to say supported their claim and this very big claim that not only was the West Memphis Three innocent, but in fact, John Mark Byers. What was the evidence that they presented in that film? Well, I didn't really think they presented uh, very much evidence at all, uh, and so much of it circled back to Mark Byers personality. Uh, there's a uh, Baldwin's defense team is together in one scene and a guy named James Razakot is talking about how, uh, you know, Mark was the kind of guy who he was big enough to have carried the three bodies. He had the motive. He was a jeweler. He had the skill to do the, uh, uh, the, uh, amputation of the people. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, uh, which, it was never really proven, but in, in any event, uh, th there were circumstantial things like that uh, that they were already pointing toward him. I didn't see any real evidence in either one of those films. Uh, the first real evidence I saw came when Damien Eccles had enough money to hire uh, a very high-powered defense team, forensic experts, uh, FBI uh, profilers, and uh, start finding and even then, the evidence was thin, but they found something. In the movie, I don't think they presented anything more than uh, circumstantial. They, of course, went to the, the, the things that everybody goes to, uh, the Miss Kelly confession. Uh, and uh, Joe and Bruce managed to, uh, they would segue these scenes with these little text screens that would uh, help the viewer hear what he was about to see. And uh, they would say things like, um, the uh, uh, Jesse Viscali was uh, interrogated for 12 hours before, you know, confessing. Now, I went through that again before I got on the air to find out the exact timeline, because Ms. Kelly actually gave four different confessions, uh, one pre-conviction, uh, pre three post-conviction, uh, and he had only been at the police station about three and a half hours before he first spilled the beans. Now, they kept him there for 12 hours, but he went in around 11 o'clock in the morning, and by 12.30 or 2.30, I mean, after failing a polygraph, uh, he cracked. And they said, well, he only had an IQ of 70, um, so that's why he cracked. I go, yeah, okay, but uh, anytime Ms. Kelly tried to, uh, to remove himself from the situation, to me, it made him closer to the situation, like by saying that he chased after Michael Moore during the murders uh, and brought him back, and then he left. So what he was saying in his you know, idiot's mind was that uh, you know, all I did was bring him back and then I left. Uh, 
And he said several times during the confession, and then I left. Okay, and then it was, then I left. Um, his confession was, was, in my opinion, a strong piece of evidence against him, and they tried to prevent it as exculpatory evidence. So uh, I, I, I honestly can't uh, think of uh, things they came, that they came up. Well, let me, let me correct that. They also found blood in uh, what became known as the John Mark Byers knife. And it was a knife that Mark had given to a crew member of right. the, uh, the filming team. And they had noticed there was some material on it that looked like blood. And they had it tested and found out that it was consistent with Mark's blood uh, and Christopher's blood, which was kind of curious because Christopher was an adoptive son. He wasn't a biological son. Uh, but they tried to question him on the stand uh, to, to get him, you know, the defense, to, to get him to, to somehow uh, trip up about And he was very confused. And, and you could tell that he was uh, drugged. Everybody at that trial was drugged. All the, at least on the, uh, the victim's uh, parents team, they, 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 they were on volume. And uh, this is from, I'm getting this from them, not from anyone else. But Mark was, if Mark appeared confused on his name, he, he probably was. Uh, but uh, they couldn't get a straight answer out of him uh, about where that blood came from. Uh, and that was probably the strongest piece of evidence that they had, because when he got off the stand, I think a lot of people in the jury weren't quite sure what to make of him. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't uh, clear himself. Uh, but in the end, it just didn't... Uh, they couldn't match any of the knives they had. They had two knives, and they couldn't match them with the wounds. So, uh, and in fact, those knife wounds would be the subject of questions for another 15 years to this day. The new defense team thinks they're turtle bites. Well, let's get to that. And you do talk about this because last week's guest, William Ramsey, Really, I, I posed the question to him, and I really asked it like, um, do you really believe that a guy like Johnny Depp really believes in every tenet of Aleister Crowley in that he believes in human sacrifice? I said, I can't believe. Do you really believe he could believe in human sacrifice, let alone animal, animal sacrifice? He's probably a vegan, I says, for God's sakes. You know, and he still said, no, I, I think he's a fellow traveler of Aleister Crowley, and so that's where he is, you know, and that's what he firmly, uh, he firmly believes. But in your book, you, well, you have a more objective tone, we'll say the least. Talk about who was really the instrumental people and the admirable job that they did do in once they believed in the cause. Tell us about that, because it's a fascinating, true story of, Hollywood not just making some noise or some rock stars behind a cause. I mean, they've been, uh, again, admirable in other causes like Live Aid and Farm Aid and some admirable things. But, again, this is something very, very, very big. If, if their convictions on these people's innocence is true, uh, they did a very, very uh, um, impressive and uh, profound thing really here. So tell us about the effort by and who those people were to get these people uh this new evidence uh, yeah you're right this, this was practically unprecedented um i think the only thing that ever surprised me more was uh, either uh oj simpson being acquitted or uh, Kate, uh casey anthony uh, being acquitted but but 
the, the way they did it was nothing compared to the West Memphis Three. Uh, this, this case was was singular. They uh, the, because the first thing that came out was a book by uh, a couple of uh, Arkansas journalists, but called Blood of Innocence was the name of the book, and it was just a pretty straightforward uh, account of the case, and it didn't get a whole lot of attention. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't until Paradise Lost uh, you know, came along, and with the first film. They were getting some lower level people like Michael Graves from the Misfits, uh, Margaret Cho. Uh, I, I think even back then they might have uh, gotten Eddie Vedder involved. And as, uh, as, as Eccles' wife points out, uh, they would not be where they are if it wasn't for Eddie Vedder. Eddie Vedder. He, he, he did more than anybody except to say that Johnny Depp. Uh, who supposedly, according to Joe, I spoke with Joe, he said, well, you know, I've been calling for years. Every year he calls me and asks me to stay to the case. And those guys still in prison. And uh, so, so allegedly, Depp was, was, very, uh, was very disturbed uh, by it. And uh, when it got to the point where uh, they raised a certain amount of money, and, and, and I'll say that at that point, the most important person, the key person, was Lori Davis. Because... They had money, you know, coming in before that, but they didn't have anybody directing the effort. And uh, Lori Davis, w- without a whole lot of connections, started contacting these people. Um, she knew about Eddie, so she got a hold of Eddie personally. But uh, you know, she, she had a practically ran a publicity office uh, for people to call in, and uh, so she hooked up all these people, and she started taking the money that they were giving her and doing what nobody else had done, and that was hiring uh, forensics experts and, and legal people. Uh, that was the West Memphis Street's main problem, is they had public defender-grade lawyers and no money uh, for uh, to prepare their case. Usually, you, if you're an indigent, you get the court will give you some money uh, to, uh, to, to collect evidence and whatnot, but they didn't do that. And so she started spreading that money around. She hired... Uh, uh, Dennis Reardon, who's uh, he worked on the uh, Night Stalker case, and I think in the appeals, he, he, was, he was part of the appeals. And that was his thing, is that he was a federal appellate uh, lawyer, uh, and he started assembling a legal team. She got John Douglas uh, to go out and start talking to people. Uh, she got the evidence uh, reexamined. There had been DN, uh, DNA evidence that uh, they had collected you know, from the beginning that was just sitting uh, in an evidence room because uh, the judge wouldn't give them any money to have it tested. Uh, so she got the money to have it tested, and out of all that came the most famous hair in history, uh, and, and that would be the hair of Terry Hobbs that was found in the binding of Michael Moore. And uh, when they had that, that was the first piece of physical evidence they had linking somebody else to the case. John M- Mark Byers looked good on camera, but there was no physical evidence. Terry Hobbs had physical evidence. And, it, and of course, if you wanted to find somebody who was a character uh, who could, was capable of violence, you know, Hobbs fit the bill. So they had a violent guy, uh, they had a hair, uh, and, uh, and away they go. And then they started doing the benefits uh, to keep the money cranking in. The last benefit they did was on the eve of the Supreme Court hearing, which resulted in their ultimate release with uh, uh, Danny Harrison was there and uh, Depp was there, Patty Smith. Uh, so, uh, and Peter Jackson got involved and, and had been involved for some time, but really behind the scenes. Uh, 
and he had been funding a woman named Amy Berg, who produced a documentary called Deliver Us from Evil about a Catholic priest who was uh, a pedophile. Uh, and uh, she had gone like undercover with Pam Hobbs uh, for several years trying to get evidence uh, implicating Hobbs. And she put out her own documentary at that time called uh, West of Memphis. So they had, at the same time, Bruce and Joe were putting a third Paradise Lost together. So there were three Paradise Lost films. There was the uh, West of Memphis documentary. There was Devil's Not the Theatrical uh, release by Adam, uh, that was his name, the Canadian guy. Yes, with, uh, uh, no, it wasn't Adam Erdogan. Adam uh, Aboyan. Yeah, Adam Aboyan. Yes. Colin Firth and, uh, and Reese Witherspoon and all that. So that's an overwhelming amount of media. And it's the kind, it's, it's, forget about the books, because as you pointed out, people weren't reading those. You know, the, the, the KGB read uh, Mara Leverett's book and they used it as their Bible, but that book was three quarters. And I invited anybody to go through and tell me otherwise. That was three quarters uh, of a hatchet job on John Mark Byers. That's all that book was. Yeah. And then they're buddies these that, days. So. <laughs> so the thing is, how on earth does the number one, the movement, on uh, how does, because Mary Le- Leverett's there at the end, you know, when the, the DNA, at least in their minds, completely exonerates the West Memphis Three and implicates in their minds completely that Hobbs is the guy and Mark Myers isn't. How does Hollywood and documentarians, because they're they're not, you know, the filmmakers aren't supposed to be as responsible as documentary filmmakers. How do they go from blaming in two movies, basically, and like you say, three quarters of Mara Leverett's book, Devil's Not, accusing Mark Byers, in this almost the same kind of way that, ironically, that the West Memphis Three were accused through not complete police work, let's say, um, how do they do that? How do they justify that? Do they say anything? Do they address that? And how does that work? Well, the one thing you said that's, that's true is, is uh, that they're held to a higher standard than a regular filmmaker. They refer, Joe and Bruce refer to themselves, and I, when I talk about Bruce Sanofsky, I should mention he passed away uh, a couple of years back, so it's just Joe now, but uh, they, uh, they refer to themselves as journalists. And in my mind, that kicks it up another notch uh, as far as uh, you know, paying, paying mind to the integrity of the, of the film. And I just uh, couldn't see it uh, uh, being there. If it, it, you, there was enough. If you, didn't, if you didn't do anything else but watch the movies, then I suppose you could believe what you saw. But uh, there was a website out there that I leaned on heavily. Uh, I contributed to pretty heavily as well. Uh, where uh, they, since the beginning of the case, they've been piling uh, evidence. Uh, we were talking about this in the pre-show. Uh, they had things uh, transcribed, recordings transcribed. They had uh, you know people transcribing court records and things like that, and evidence reports and photocopies of uh, police reports. And I mean, they had just had so much stuff up there. It was very. I wouldn't say it was easy. It would be tedious to walk yourself through. Uh, what was up there, 
but it would also tell you the facts. And a lot of the people who came up with different facts, and I'll include someone like John Douglas, who came up with a completely different uh, scenario, could not have possibly gone through uh, the records uh, and, and looked at the facts. The documentarians, uh, you can tell, one of the first things Joe said after, uh, after seeing Damien Eccles in court uh, was that after talking to him for five minutes, he realized that he was totally innocent. And if somebody, if somebody can tell you that they can tell anybody is innocent after talking to them for five minutes, he obviously didn't read all the psychiatric reports. Uh, he didn't know Eccles' uh, history. I mean, this is a violent, disturbed, you know, an emotionally disturbed guy. Uh, and even if you, you don't buy that that's enough of a motive for murder, uh, it's, it's still something that, uh, that, that the filmmakers were unaware of uh, when, they, uh, when, they, when they interviewed Eccles, when they made that movie. Uh, again, the, the, the first movie was better factually in that it, 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 was, it was less theatrical in nature. In the second uh, movie, they, they got Kathy and Grove and Burke uh, and Meryl Everett. And it was the whole, it, by Joe's own admission, the movie was uh, them watching the Free the West Memphis Three support group. That's what the whole second movie is about. So it tells you right in the beginning what you're going to see. You're going to see, uh, you're going to see a, uh, a group of filmmakers, and it's really easy to do it on film to just what you leave on a cutting room floor. You can make your case uh, and still. Now, let me say that I think that uh, I, I believe that, that Joe believes in what he was doing. I don't know if he would say that he was held up to the highest standards of journalism, but he's, he's an ends justify the means kind of guy. And he said that the problem with Joe is he likes to talk. And if you go through the, the, the uh, commentary to the films, which I did, uh, and, you know, call the internet for all the hundreds of interviews that he's given, he just loves the blind because nobody disagrees with him. You know, he never has to get put against any scrutiny. You'll find in this, in this case, most people believe that the West Memphis Three uh, are, are innocent. I find that mind-boggling, but uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. Well, before we get to again, that will be, of course, an opinion. Um, let's. I want to go through some things that again are just highly contestable, and some things don't come up that, that just boggle my mind that they don't come up. And one of the most important things, I mean, your book's called Untying the Knot. There's Devil's Knot. Uh, William Ramsey talked about in his, he claimed that there was proof the way the, the shoelaces were tied of a satanic ritual. And, and yet I read in your book about, for the first time, that there are three distinct styles of knots, which indicates three different killers. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's uh, that was one thing that didn't get noticed. I don't think very early in the, in the, in the case either, but it, it did certainly during the appeals. And uh, even John Douglas admits that uh, one thing, one possibility uh, for different knots is that it's not un, it's not unheard of for a killer to have his victims tie each other up. Uh, and you had three boys there, right. and they were Cub Scouts, and they theoretically knew how to tie knots. So that's a possibility. Terry Hobbs, uh, you know, they found one of his his uh, his hairs 
uh, in the, the not uh, binding Michael Moore. Uh, and, there's, and there's a lot of disagreement about that because they don't, I don't have access to the actual piece of evidence and, and they seem to be kind of vague as far as was it lying on the uh, shoelace, was it in the knot? Um, but it was associated with that knot that found Michael Moore. And, uh, uh, the question arises, why would, he, why would he tie three different style of knots? Um, yeah, it would, right. it wouldn't, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, John Douglas admits that too. Why would it be all these different men? And he postulates that maybe one of the kids tied up the other kid. And that's possible. Um, although, if it was, Jesse Miss Kelly didn't say that. And he never said that. And during any one of his four confessions, he never said anything about anybody but Damien and Jason tying knots, which means that he probably tied one himself too. John Douglas also says that it was impossible for uh, Jesse Miss Kelly to have run away and grab Michael Moore and bring him back because he was already uh, he was already bound and he couldn't have run away. And I don't know where he gets that bit of information because it's not in the facts. So he, that's just something he made up. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I don't really. In fact, I sat here with a, a pile of uh, leather thongs trying to uh, find out because I was not a Boy Scout and I don't know anything about knots. And uh, they gave a very good description of, you know, how these knots are, are tied. And uh, they, some of them seem a little more complicated than an eight-year-old uh, could tie. But Jesse made an interesting point when he was asked during one of the confessions, well, how come the, the kids, how do you, do you get the kids to stay still while you tie them up? And Jesse said, well, these little pieces, kids are just like puppies. He said, you can whoop them and they'll stay put. Well, I thought that was a fascinating thing to say because I also believe that that's true. It is easier to control children. Uh, and I don't think you needed any kind of uh, giant intellect or a huge body size. or uh, But it, certainly if you had help, uh, you know, that would do it. Uh, so, I mean, that's the obvious explanation for different knots is that there could be three different kids involved. could be four if one of the victims was tying the knot. Now, everything about uh, whether they had a fair trial, I mean, we, we won't dwell on this too much about the fair trial, um, but at least that has to be said that that's part of this, these people's argument is that did the West Memphis Three receive a fair trial, especially given the satanic ritual theory that was put forth as motive? Uh, let's just get that off the, you know, did they receive a fair trial? Did they... Especially in light of the DNA evidence that they that they did uh, uncover, did they deserve another trial? Did they deserve, so two questions, I guess. Yeah, they totally deserved another trial. Their first trial was completely uh, unfair, and the fact that they deserved another trial not only did they deserve it, but they were going to get it, and that's what forced the Alford deal uh, to begin with. Right. Because they had they had the, the state had the uh, choice of either uh, letting convicted killers go free and admitting they were wrong and opening themselves up to all the civil suits and, you know, whatever, all that. Uh, and, uh, or uh, getting to, to take the Alfred plea, and they still, they still would wind up as convicts, um, but they would be released after 17 or 18 years uh, behind bars. But the thing that made the, 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 the trial, and it goes right back to the beginning, even forgetting uh, the, uh, the whole uh, occult uh, 
I met with Vicky Hutchinson at one point, and I still never found out why. Uh, you know, it's, it's a mystery how much Jesse Miss Kelly was into the uh, cult. He, uh, and and uh, I don't, you know, I mean, they had a little little uh, spooky groups going on around town, but uh, I don't think anybody ever really proved the occult. But the, the question I think that you're asking is, did the jury buy it? And um, it's a two-pronged answer. And in, in the case of the Jesse uh, Miss Kelly trial, because he was tried separately, uh, because he wouldn't testify against the others. Uh, in his case, uh, the jury believed the confession. They heard the taped confession played in open court. That's all they needed to hear. And uh, what they did, uh, though, was uh, that information found its way into the trial of Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, who were tried together. And uh, it was later uncovered that, you know, the jury had included the Miss Kelly confession in their deliberations. Uh, right. And they, uh, um, yeah, they, they included uh, the confession in their deliberations. And uh, also they had a juror who, uh, who talked his way onto the jury he lied about, you know, some, some questions, you know, they ask you during what are all the different questions that might preclude you from pro- providing a bias uh, service. And, and he lied to that. And he also discussed it with uh, his attorney and wanted to know because he was afraid that the prosecution was dropping the ball and they were going to, they weren't going to convict these guys. And he wanted to make sure he decided they were guilty. He wanted them convicted. And, uh, so uh, that's when he brought the this kind of convention, uh, uh, confession into into the jury deliberations. Uh, that's enough. That's juror misconduct. Uh, he had a tainted jury, and if Judge Burnett had given them a new trial right away, uh, they may have come up with the same uh, jury, the same uh, opinion, because those people were there were local people, and the news sort of was still big and. But he didn't, he didn't do that. He stonewalled them for 15 years. And by that time, they were guaranteed a new trial and they were going to be acquitted. And everybody knew it. So yeah. that's why they came yeah. up with the Alpha plea. So that's the deal. Yes, the short answer is they deserved uh, new trials and they should have had them right away. For that reason. Alone. Okay, we're going to. Okay, what we're going to do is, uh, Greg, we're going to take this opportunity just for two minutes to talk about the uh, sponsor of this program, which is Loot Crate. And Loot Crate is a mystery crate filled with exclusive items from the biggest and bop, best pop culture franchises delivered right to your door every month. And exclusive items including apparel, collectibles, licensed gear, and unique one-of-a-kind must-haves. Loot Crate partners with top, top brands including Marvel, Nintendo, Call of Duty, and Star Wars to get you every month exclusive products. Thirteen ninety-five per month plus six dollars shipping and handling. Total price nineteen ninety-five. That's a recurring monthly rate. But there are no commitments, and so you're in control. Cool limited edition stuff like shirts, vinyl figures, other collectibles. Four to six items over forty-five dollars of retail value in every crate for under twenty bucks. And this month, pop culture is full of brave new worlds. Societies in flux that don't always turn out for the best. June's theme will be 
exploring some of the ways things go wrong with Dystopia, featuring classics RoboCop, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and The Matrix, and new faves Bioshock Infinite and Fallout 4. And they've got the loot to lift your spirits. And subscribe for this June's uh, Loot Crate, Mystery Crate, by the 19th of June at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, that's the deadline. So every month, a Loot Crate member wins a Mega Crate valued at over $2,000, loaded with exclusive collectible gear, tech gadgets, game systems, apparel and accessories, and other items so big and epic they can't fit in their monthly crates. And if you use the, use the True Murder code, that's at lootcrate.com slash truemurder, you're going to get an additional $3 off your monthly subscription. So that's go to lootcrate.com, L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E, lootcrate.com slash truemurder, and get yourself $3 off that monthly subscription and get yourself Dystopia, June's Loot Crate Mystery Box. So we last left off, we were talking about uh, the, the effect of this Alfred plea. Well, not the effect of the Alfred plea, but the effect of all of the, the five movies, the films, and the movement to get these people uh, released from prison. What is the state of the case legally as a result of all those five movies and all this activism and the Alfred plea in reality, what is the legal uh, evidence against Terry Hobbs in reality, and what is what's the, if anything, any kind of movement by the police or any progress by police in that area? Yeah, the police aren't uh, really involved now, but there are uh, there are a group of uh, some of the victims' families. Mark being one of them, uh, Pam Hobbs, uh, and uh, some other people because they. They're looking to exonerate the West Memphis Three rather than just have them uh, released from prison. And the only way that they can do it, they're all focused on Terry Hobbs. As far as the evidence that they have, uh, there's the hair. The hair is, and, I, and I, I'll go through the details. In the book, I, go, I do go into detail about uh, mitochondrial DNA and what the story is with that hair and how inculpatory it actually is. Um, there's no hair follicle, it's just a hair shaft. So you can't get anything but mitochondrial DNA, which can trace things through the mother's line. And they could say things like, uh, you know, Terry Hobbs is one of a group of, you know, in West Memphis, uh, 3,500 people who could have done this, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, but, but it's, you know, it, 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 I don't think it's very good evidence, but it's evidence. Uh, they also have uh, some statements uh, by Hobbs' then neighbors uh, and I'm, I'm going to geese a little bit here because I, I, I think that I think one was Jennifer Baird. They were sisters, and they lived three doors down from uh, from Terry in West Memphis. And right. they uh, they claimed to have seen him uh, with all three boys uh, at his house uh, on a date where uh, he said he had never he had not seen the boys. He had he hadn't even seen his own stepson. Stevie, because Terry hadn't come home from work yet when Stevie went out riding bikes. Uh, so th they're, they're showing that he not only saw, but was with and, and talked to these three kids uh, the, 
very shortly before the emergency, within an hour or so. Uh, so that's another piece of it. And they, they, those are just sworn affidavits. And, uh, they, uh, they've got uh, Terry's, uh, she wasn't a wife. Um, she was a fiance, I think. And she said that uh, he used to talk about the murders in his sleep. Mind you, this stuff is coming out like within the last five six years. It, 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 she wouldn't say anything about it then. But she said she didn't. She like she didn't hear about the case, so she didn't know to come forward with this information. The same way with the girls, uh, and uh, uh, seeing the three boys, which uh, they didn't they didn't know that it was an issue, or else they would have brought it up uh, years ago. There was also a woman named Mildred. I can't remember her name. She was out in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and right. Terry knew her when he was uh, younger, before he married Pam. Uh, and uh, she claimed that uh, he, uh, he broke into her apartment while she was in the shower and sexually assaulted her, uh, and that the uh, land, uh, landlord, as a result, kicked him out of the apartment. Um, so this is another sworn affidavit. She said, this woman's very old. Well, not very old now, but she's in her, she's probably my age. Um, she's maybe in her 60s or something. And, uh, uh, but she came forward. Uh, and uh, that's really all they have, although they're using, uh, uh, he, Terry Hobbs filed a defamation suit against Natalie Maines and the, Dix, and, and the Dixie Chicks. Uh, Maines individually and, and Dixie Chicks collectively for defamation. Um, because of uh, the uh, information they had put on their website right after, this is right after the hair was found and all that. And uh, uh, Natalie Maines actually went up to uh, uh, Little Rock to the Capitol. She claimed she was going to see the governor, but the governor wouldn't see her. So she just saw some functionary and, uh, uh, and just presented him with a, peti a petition and some postcards and whatnot. Uh, but she apparently had said something on the website about uh, Terry Hobbs. Uh, and he felt that it was defamatory, and so he brought suit. Uh, he got a, a lawyer in his neck of the woods to do it pro bono, uh, and they went through depositions, and the judge ended up dismissing uh, the case with being without evidence. But a lot of things, in fact, I have sitting right on my shelf like 15 hours of positive depositions, and they're using things that he says in there as part of the right. case that they would put together now. So that's all I know of that they have against uh, you know, Terry Hobbs. I mean, there's probably more uh, little things, but those are the biggies. Well, one of the things that was raised in the film and, and I found compelling is the timeline inconsistencies, and I think that's very, very important. And again, we haven't mentioned that of all the people – I mean, normally police would look at the members of a family first, and what you point out in this book is Terry Hobbs was never questioned until 14 years later, and he would that's have never true. been questioned if it weren't for the films. Yep, that's true. That's correct. Now, the timeline he includes, very interesting. Again, this is, you, you have to, you know, you put this together and that together to create your, your theory, not your theory, but other people's theory that this David Jacoby is a very interesting character because he is, for at least with some people, Terry Hobbs. Again, he isn't questioned by police, so he doesn't need an alibi per se, but he says different things to different people involving David Jacoby, and then David Jacoby is interviewed and says different things uh, contrary to what Terry Hobbs has said. So tell us what you found 
and what was tell us about this. Yeah, David Jacoby uh, was actually a friend of Pam Hobbs' uh, family back from up in Blytheville, and he but he lived there in West Memphis, and uh, him and Terry used to play guitar and uh, whatnot. And yeah, he did uh, he did tell police because they they interviewed they didn't interview Jacoby till later on either. They had no reason to. Um, and right. He, he's going through the same set of foggy recollections. Um, he he's not 100% sure, like you said, on the timeline. Uh, uh, he gives a couple of different timelines, but they're close enough uh, to around what might have been the time of death. Because remember, they never established time of death either. Uh, but they can they can they can narrow it down circumstantially, you know, about when it probably took place and. Uh, Hobbs had come to uh, Jacoby's house uh, somewhere prior to six o'clock on that night. Uh, they played guitar for a while, and uh, Terry had actually uh, come from from home for Stevie, because Stevie and Jacoby's kids used to play, and they were good friends. And uh, Stevie had uh, Pam had already gone to work, and when Terry got home, Stevie was gone. So he went looking at Jacoby's, and he, but he, he wasn't a lot of concerned. You know, they said, well, why did he play guitar with his friend for half an hour when his son was missing? But, you know, you know, West Memphis, and everybody knew each other, and uh, it, 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 was just, it was just not an unusual thing, you know, that Steve could be out riding his bike. Uh, but at one point, he right. allegedly got concerned, and after 6 o'clock, and uh, he left, according to Jacoby, for around 45 minutes. And when he came back, he said he hadn't found him. Now, there are those who claim that that was enough time to commit the murders. And I suppose it probably was because everything, you know, one of the things that strikes you when you drive around that area uh, is how close everything is. You know, it makes it sound like people are miles and miles away. But all these sites, the trailer uh, parks, the uh, the bayou, uh, Hobbs, uh, Byers house, all that is like walking distance. Uh, you know, it's very close. And uh, he... he uh, he didn't tell uh, Terry at the time. I mean, J- Jacoby at the time, that, uh, you know, where, wherever he'd been. Uh, but uh, he, he did say that he hadn't found uh, a Stevie, and then he left again. And it gets confusing after that. You actually have to go through the documentation uh, and Terry's own statements uh, you know, to see uh, where he went, because shortly thereafter, he hooked up with uh, Mark Byers, and according to Terry, that was the first time he'd ever laid eyes on Mark Byers. Uh, even though they lived a quarter mile away from each other and their kids played, he, he, he didn't know. And uh, uh, Todd Moore, Michael Moore's dad, was away on a trucking trip. Uh, and uh, Dana Moore's mom uh, was there and, and Chris's mom, Melissa. Uh, and so they were there together. And that's when Regina Meek, Officer Regina Meek, came up to take their statements because Mark had already called police. He knew right. that, that that Christopher was not was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be, and so she came, uh, took those statements, and she never made any mention of seeing Terry Hobbs. Uh, Terry said he's in one account that he was in his car the whole time, uh, and in another account he said he was there with them and he saw me. Could, uh, nobody came and asked her, "Did you see Terry Hobbs?" So uh, I can't tell you whether uh, he was there or not. She just was silent on the subject. And in the statements, it doesn't say anything about, it says that Mark was there, Melissa was there, Dana was there. Uh, didn't say anything about Terry. But Terry said he was there, and then he joined the search uh, effort at that point, where people were going in and out of Robin Hood Hills. 
understand. He was with uh, his father-in-law because Pam had called her dad from uh, Flyville. It took him about half hour, 45 minutes to get down there, Jackie Hicks uh, Sr. And uh, he and Terry had gone through uh, around to the, the Blue Bayou, uh, Blue, Bayou Blue Deep Beacon Truck stop, and uh, called into the woods and stuff. But they were never really clear about whether they went into the woods. Pam said she went into the woods. Uh, Jacoby said he went into the woods. Terry Hobbs, I think he went into the woods. But in, in any case, they didn't, they didn't find anything. And uh, with a, a crime scene that was so trampled, because there was dozens, and this is just the night before, the next day, they didn't discover the bodies till like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And from dawn all the way through that time, the crime scene had just been trampled. Uh, so uh, they only had a few things that they could rely on, like they fished their bikes out of Bayou. So somebody had definitely thrown them in there after committing the murders, or before, but probably after. Uh, Let's get to, again, I think the, 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 before we start talking and looking at Hobbs and eliminating Hobbs or including Hobbs or accusing Hobbs and, and creating a scenario where that happened, was there really... Well, what was there, the corroborating evidence that Jesse Miskelly gave in totality of the, if you sorted out all the five confessions under all the circumstances, one in front of, or a couple in front of their attorneys where they pleaded them not to, you know, pleaded with them not to confess, but they did regardless. Of all the totality, what was the, the what were the, f- the corresponding Evidence that said yes, what Jim uh, Jesse Muskelly said corresponded. You know, we had we we had talk of again very very confusing when you get somebody saying it was a surgical castration and then we're talking about sea turtles or or some kind of turtles, right. and we talk about a, a wound on the left side of the cheek that Jesse Muskelly had made. So tell us the things that corroborated what he said to to prove that there was some crucial evidence in his. Confessions. I think it was the things that he said that could be proven false, the proof he was lying, uh, were, were more, because he didn't give a whole lot of corroborating evidence. Uh, you know, the things he gave were all circumstantial. Uh, it, the closest thing he got to physical evidence was he said that there was a, a whiskey bottle that uh, he had uh, drank and that after the, uh, after the murders, he left separate from Ms. Kelly and I mean, from uh, Eccles and Baldwin, and he went walking along the railroad tracks, finishing this bottle of Evans Walker whiskey, and, and he threw it off the, the bridge there, and danced did him, and then I was going back down there and finding it. Uh, and it's very difficult to take a, a bunch of broken glass <laughs> and say, well, sure. this, was a, this is evidence. Uh, so, but I mean, it was something that he told them, and they could kind of uh, corroborate it. Uh, I think the, the biggest problem with uh, with Miss Kelly's confession was that he named all these people that knew where he was, none of which were Damien and Jason. He, these, he, because he was supposedly said he was wrestling that night up in uh, Dias, which is about 40 miles away. And uh, the guys that he named uh, all came up to the stand and initially lied about the dates, and then it was proven that they that they didn't see him 
uh, on that particular day that it was a, a different day that he was there. Uh, the, I think they convincingly uh, convinced the jury that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't where he said he was. So that was a bad piece of, you know, that's kind of counter evidence. Uh, you, 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 it really goes back to the alibi because I, I can't think of anything that Jesse Miskelly gave them uh, that they were uh, able to corroborate with the exception of uh, his dealings with Victoria uh, Hutchinson, but she was supposedly working with the police at that time too. So they didn't need Ms. Kelly to corroborate anything. Uh, he, uh, I, I honestly can't think of anything. I don't know that there was anything. Now, in your mind, does the DNA and experts' minds and the courts' minds, in terms of historically, do they take DNA, what they found, what they uncovered with their their experts, in that, is that an exoneration of the West Memphis Three, that there is no DNA linking them at that crime scene? Or a, DNA evidence at their residences? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, question. And... Uh, the, None of the DNA evidence that they collected was really legally useful. And their, uh, the, the, the circumstances leading up to the Alfred plea had absolutely nothing to do with evidence. Uh, you know, they convicted them on, you know, on a, on a panic. They would have acquitted them on public opinion. And uh, so I, I don't... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that because uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there was a total absence of uh, of DNA. Um, you know where they would find it uh, is you know is beyond me. Uh, as far as in their houses go, uh, they came up with the fiber evidence, and I'll admit up front that I'm not a fiber guy. <laughs> I, I read what they said about the fiber. Um, and, you know, I took their word for it, but uh, it, it didn't seem particularly convincing of anything, because all that stuff is, you know, might be to the exclusion of such and such, and uh, that's usually not enough to gain a conviction or, uh, uh, or an acquittal. So the thing is, is then, is in the, the, the supporters' minds, they were they were sure in the first place because based on the movies and based on their just their ideas that that the West Memphis Three were completely innocent and they were railroaded and that there was some other killer and first they thought it was John Mark Byers and so they destroyed his life almost completely and then it was uh, Terry Hobbs and that crusade continues. Yes, it was. So I'll ask you. The, I'll ask you the question then. Why do you think, or what's your evidence that still maintains the guilt of the West Memphis Three? I don't like to use the alternate suspect, but I have a kind of alternate suspect in reverse, and uh, there really are none. There's nobody else who could have who could have uh, done uh, what they did. Uh, they. Uh, they were they were good suspects, and I'll start with that. They were good suspects, uh, and we we, could, we can't go ahead and use uh, all the medical records on Damien Echoes as evidence of anything other than uh, that he was a disturbed kid. But they had said uh, some things, and and granted, listen, you gotta understand if you're involved in this case, you're not really 
hardcore either way. The supporters tend to be hardcore, but it, it falls apart pretty quick because, because it's the nature of this case. I, I hear things like when Jesse Miskelly was giving one of his statements uh, to the attorneys and they asked him, uh, were, uh, were all three boys dead when they were thrown into the water? And uh, Jesse said, uh, no, he said one of them was alive. And uh, they go, how could you tell he was alive? I said, well, he was there wiggling like a worm. And that image just haunted me because to me, that's a, there's somebody who saw it. He said he wiggled like a worm. He saw that. And also the fact that one of the boys had water in their lungs, or two of the boys had water in their lungs. And one, I'm sorry, one of them had water in his lungs and the other two didn't, meaning they were dead when they were put into the water and one of them was alive. Right. Uh, there is the absence of uh, Damien Eccles' various trench coats. Um, they searched his apartment that night, uh, June... I want to say ninth. Uh, the night they were all arrested, and they, they searched his uh, uh, his trailer, and they didn't find a single trench coat. Now this guy wore a trench coat everywhere he went, and that's the one thing that everybody agrees on in West Memphis is that Damien Eccles wore a trench coat 12 months out of the year everywhere he went. Good chance at seeing the crime he was wearing that trench coat. Now all of a sudden there are no trench coats to be found. The West Memphis police don't ask. Uh, I mean, they asked uh, later at trial, where's, where's the trench coat? He said, Damien said, I don't know, uh, my parents must have it. But, of course, they didn't have it because he had ditched it. Uh, so that, that, always, uh, you know, that always bothered me. Uh, well, then I'll ask he, the question, I'll ask the question, then why? I mean, again, not to say that I have to have all five tenants of the who, what, where, why, uh, you know, I can't. Nobody gets that, I don't think, or very rarely. But still, you have to have an idea. You're very, very involved with this for six, seven, how many, ten years almost. Mm-hmm. Why? Why would they do this? I mean, is there anything? Is there anything to this angle that the police and prosecutors had? Is there nothing to it? Is there anything to it? There's nothing to the satanic ritual, um, per se. The fact that Damien Eccles. Uh, probably believe pretty strongly in the occult. And uh, if you read the document called Exhibit 500, that was something they put together. It's got his entire psychiatric history from all the different places uh, that uh, he'd been. And you look back on his life, uh, you know, his life was hell. And I encourage somebody to, to, to get the book and read that particular part on Damien uh, and how that kid grew up. Uh, and he was an accident waiting to happen. So I think that if uh, you add uh, some uh, drugs to the mix and some alcohol, Jesse said they were drunk, but I don't know, I don't know what that means. Uh, and, and, and then, you, you know, the story that Miss Kelly told about him calling the kids over and, you know, Damien Evans was a hated guy around town. You know, he, he, he was in a little podunk uh, southern town and, uh, he, he was despised, and that can do a lot to somebody. And like I said, he put together this personal history, but that doesn't tell you why, and I don't really know why. But I'll tell you what, I also don't know why uh, Terry Hobbs would have done it. I don't know why anybody would have done such a thing. So you're faced with having to come up with an answer that's not going to be really satisfying. Now, why there is talk in your book, and there is talk, of course, of, the other alternative 
is that uh, Hobbes did it, and uh, Jacob, uh, J- Jacoby uh, or Jacoby was involved, and there was a couple other people's Michael Hobbes Jr. So tell us about that story and why that's in your mind doesn't have too much credibility. Well, I, you know, David, David Jacoby was a friend of the family's. And like I said, he was a friend of Pam's family from back in Blytheville, and he knew Stevie well. Uh, and uh, I mean, I can't, I can't conceive of any situation uh, where he would team up with Terry Oz and, and, and kill his son and the other two boys. It, it, it makes so little sense that you'd have to have compelling physical evidence, and then you don't have to worry about motive. You know? And that's the problem in this case, is you've got a lot of motives, but no compelling evidence. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the uh, the uh, nephews of Terry Hobbs, or nephew Michael Hobbs and his two friends, uh, they came up with a story, uh, and again, this was done very recently, uh, post everything. Uh, they came up with a story that they heard Terry and his brother downstairs in uh, Terry's brother's house uh, talking about... Uh, the, the murders. Terry basically confessing, and uh, Michael already knew this and said, "Hey, this is the uh, this is the Hobbs family secret. Uh, we don't tell anybody." And they uh, they took the two uh, Mike uh, Michael Hobbs, the nephew, denied any uh, he denied that he ever heard his his father or uncle say that. Um, his two friends claimed that they did. They took they uh, they gave affidavits. They took polygraphs. Uh, and, and pass them. And, and an interesting thing about uh, polygraphs, especially in this case, is that when they when they point to the guilt of the West Memphis Three, they're turned out they're, they're termed bad polygraphs. But when they're turned out to be you know uh, inculpatory of Terry Hobbs, they're good uh, they're good polygraphs. I've met with several polygraphers who believe they they really believe in what they do. I mean they really think that that their craft shows them something, uh, but they're not admissible for a reason. And, uh, but I, so I don't give any credence to these boys at all because of the time they waste. If they're telling the truth, that's a, that's a shame that they waited so long to tell somebody because if they had, uh, Terry Hobbs is never going to, Terry Hobbs is never going to do any time for this crime ever. And those boys aren't going to no, do but anything it, else. Either. Well, no, the thing is that there's many reasons why they would not go after I mean, even if more evidence came against Terry Hobbs, they'd likely not try to prosecute them. Yes, you're right and about this that. Is the, so, but here's the thing. I mean, again, for our audience that's going to ask this question, and I guess I'm going to have to ask this question, from what you're saying, because there's, again, no cor- uh, corroborating evidence of Miss Kelly, basically, or very, very little, and you say... There is no evidence of satanic ritual motivation. Uh, And Terry Hobbs, you can't imagine a motivation. And it looks like that there, it's, again, if I'm wrong, you can correct me, that it looks like more than one person had to either control these kids and tie them up and or tie them up. So which kind of rules out Hobbs doing it completely by himself. And then there is that presence of... uh, Pam's friend David, his hair being there, and so people have talked about, well, Hobbs could have planted that, and then Hobbs immediately, like almost like a guilty person, is talking about secondary transfer, like he's a lawyer. Um, you say that you can't imagine a, a motivation or motive for Terry Hobbs and his friend David 
Um, and then, but the motivation for Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin is what? Is it, Damian's mentally ill and Jason is his friend? He's 16, looking like he's 14. Uh, if it's not an occult motivation, what do you think the motive? Again, I asked you before, but again, if it's not, both people don't seem to have a really good motive. Yeah, that's uh, they don't. This is what I. This is the problem with this case. This is the whole problem with it. Is that there's 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 no motive. There's no motive. If you hadn't caught Richard Ramirez red-handed, you wouldn't have a motive for him either. Why did right. he do what he did? You know, tell me why he did what he did, to my satisfaction, so that I can understand uh, that he's guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And there isn't anything. And so, and Charlie Manson's. Uh, uh, Prove Helter Skelter. Vince Bogliosi had to go into court and prove Helter Skelter to a very skeptical jury, but he did it. But that's you know that's a pretty nebulous type of motive to send four people to their deaths, three of them being teenage girls. The motive is just something we're going to have to do without in this case, and I'm not going to postulate one because I haven't the slightest idea. That doesn't mean that those boys are just as dead. Uh, whether there was a motive or not. And you're going to take two hairs and say that 15 years later, uh, a guy and his best friend killed his son. Okay, I think that's a, I think that's a worse motive than three wasted psychotic teenagers um, getting carried away with, uh, uh, yeah. because all they really did was tie him up and drown him. They, they, each one, and they bashed him on the back of the head with a rock. That is pretty basic. I mean, Jesse Miskelly knew how to bash somebody with a rock. He was very capable and he was very pliable. He would do anything he was told just about. And Baldwin was also very malleable. So those are just, you know, those are just things. They don't prove anything. And I'm not going to sit here what and tell about you. The, what about the surgical precision or lack of surgical precision? Was, in your mind, because they're so diametrically opposed, those two theories and, and the testimony from the original medical examiner, what did you find? likely happened was it surgical or was it animal predation or was it what what'd you find well considering the size of what we're talking about animal predation isn't out of the question um but it didn't seem like a surgical uh thing uh to me and uh, but i i don't really know i'm not being an expert i couldn't say uh the uh Peretti, the uh, medical examiner was a hack a well-known hack and, and he's been discredited so many times over the years and a lot of the things that he did, you know, that, that set the case, the way, this set the stage for the case for the next 15 years. He, he's the guy who, he's the only guy who got a look at the bodies. Everybody else is going by pictures. I sat in court and listened to uh, Warner Spitz uh, say that when he looked at all the marks on the bodies from the pictures, that there was no doubt in his mind that this was animal product. Uh, and I say, you know what, I think that's, I think that's nonsense because, I saw those pictures too, and I could find a bunch of things that look like. And I don't care if I'm not a pathologist or not. Uh, how can you how can you look at those pictures that lay? And why would anybody put the? You know, the they would have had to have been in that ditch for a long time uh, for for the turtles to go munching on all three of them. And the fact is, they were in there. What? Uh, let's see, twelve. Uh, I don't know, fifteen hours. Right, right. I don't see how you could put out all of those. Uh, and, uh, but I will say that there's a mark on Steve Branch's skull uh, that looks exactly like a puncture wound from a knife. 
seen enough puncture wounds. So, so I, I, nobody, nobody would address that. And so I don't know. But, it, but if you go up to the Callahan website, that, that picture is up there somewhere. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, the, that, that supports the use of a knife. But uh, the, the wounds that they found in them were so shallow, you know, and the, the knives that they would have had were, you know, we're not talking about butter knives, you know, certainly even if you had a pen knife, it would make a deep enough uh, mark. I think the deepest puncture wound they found was an inch and three quarters. Um, but that's more than a turtle could do. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, I don't, I, I don't know. I wasn't watching. Uh, I don't know. I know what killed them were the, uh, was the uh, blunt object in the basal region of the skull. And all three kids, they were lined up and their heads smashed in. Uh, and that's what killed them. Was there one more of this corroborating question? Was there, I know there was controversy over it, but what did you think about that? The, the one corrobor- corroborating statement he said about the, the wound on the left cheek of the, the boy that he couldn't have known otherwise. I didn't think a whole lot about that. And unfortunately, Jesse Miss Kelly was, he, he made so many contradictory, confusing statements that, and these boys were so badly brutalized that it was really hard for me to link up a fist with a, a wound on the side of the face. But, but it's certainly possible. Right. Uh, right. Certainly possible. Now, the big part of your book is, of course, the, the journey of uh, John Mark Byers. And, and to me, he's a sympathetic character. Uh, based on just the evidence you put forth. Some bad luck, some, you know, foolish, foolish behavior. However, again, I, I got to sympathize with a guy that loses his son and is genuinely distraught like this man. And then what Hollywood did to this guy, or specifically, not Hollywood, but specifically these filmmakers. So tell us a little bit about what this effect, what the effect of being accused did to him at the time that he was still grieving and for those people that might not understand the reaction that they saw on film how did you how was it explained to you by understanding his character how could you explain to somebody to say listen you just don't know what this this can all create and and that presentation is much different than the man that I know yeah that's not easy either uh, obviously uh, you know but the Mark Byers that I knew uh, for mm, seven, eight, nine years uh, was, I, ne- I never saw that guy in the movies. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I accept, accept to see them in the movies. Uh, so uh, he never really offered uh, excuses or even explanations uh, for some of the things uh, that he did. Um, you know, he went to some basic, like there's a scene in the movie where him and Todd Moore blast apart some pumpkins, uh, pretending that they're the West Memphis area. Uh, he told me that he went to the hotel bar, waited for the filmmakers, and got drunk, and then went there and shoots him. Uh, but did Mark Byers have to get drunk to uh, blow apart a pumpkin in effigy? No, he didn't. Uh, burning the graves in effigy? Uh, he, he's a very, very emotional guy, and and I will say at this point that I, I met his entire family now, and uh, except his dad who had passed away, uh, and, and mom, his dad and mom passed away, his brother, uh, sisters, and nephews, and everything. And uh, <laughs> he's the only one that's even remotely the way he is. I mean, they're this just average, you know, 
good old Arkansas family. They're nice, decent people. Uh, he had a good upbringing. Um, in fact, in his mind, he said that he might have even been a little spoiled. Uh, but uh, when uh, he, uh, boredom apparently started him getting into trouble as a teenager, there was nothing else to do there in uh, Mark Tree, Arkansas, population, mm, I think they're down to 300. Uh, and so he, but uh, same, he did get into a drug dealing thing, just marijuana, but he was into it for a while and he'd gotten caught a couple of times and, uh, but he, he'd gone to, uh, uh, Paris, Paris junior college, South Paris, uh, a jeweler school. And he got his degree in horology and he opened up, uh, uh, he started working in the South and that, this is in his early twenties. He was pretty straight. Um, just going around, uh, collecting jewelry from people that needed to repair. He, he, he got married once, uh, and I think, it produced two children, didn't last much long after that. And then he shortly thereafter met Melissa uh, the Fur and married her, and they opened up a jewelry store together in West Memphis. Uh, but, you know, uh, I guess he just had a little crooked bent to him, you know. You know, some people have to do things that aren't quite on the up and up, like the Rolex watch incident where he had, as a jeweler, he was able to get some Rolex watches sent to him uh, on uh, on spec, and he would sell them in the jewelry store. Well, and he planned it that he would say that he never received them, and he sold the two watches to somebody uh, up uh, in Cherokee Village. Uh, he eventually got caught for that, uh, and that was right around the time of the murders, because what he, what he, he ended up using the money that they had raised for him, he said he, he said publicly he didn't have enough money to bury his son. So there's a, there was a fund that churches had started in, uh, for all three victims' families. And uh, Mark had to use that money to pay off the jeweler so that he wouldn't press charges. Now, any, any other time, they probably would have just arrested him. But because of what was going on, they let him pay it off. And uh, so it was little things like that. Uh, and when we asked the uh, murders, I think, I think things got worse uh, for him. Uh, you know, he, his wife was... Uh, you know, an opioid addict, and you know, he, he drank and, and smoked a lot of pot. And when they went to their exile up in Cherokee Village, they just it was a perfect place for them to find trouble, and they found lots of it. Uh, it was that really that led to uh, you know a, a succession of uh, of crimes and arrests that led to his being in prison in uh, 1999. So uh, you know. That's my take on it. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that the mark before the murders and the mark now are different than the guy in between. If you met Mark Byers now, you'd think he was a nice guy around, and he is. He's a real nice guy. I seems decent. I mean, I from all the things I've seen too, it's it's you see the difference. And I mean, to me, I just got to say I don't have too many opinions about movies and documentaries, but I couldn't. Couldn't believe the the style, the documentary style, or I don't know. I thought it was irresponsible. Those scenes that were staged, obviously, you can't say that's spontaneous. Besides, I wouldn't have never included them. I think the reason well, exactly. irrelevant why would, anyway. Why would you have included them? There's only one reason, and that was the whole thing. Yeah. About a lot of the scenes, and the second movie really didn't have enough material for a movie. The first the first movie was a completely different mm-hmm. animal. The second movie yeah. without Mark Byers and the Free the West Memphis Three Club, you didn't have any movie at all. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the other question I was going to ask was, um, 
Why did Mark Byers then, after he knew the, the horrendous treatment and the unfair treatment, he was in prison realizing he didn't even get to see the premiere of those movies or the second one until he was released, why did he cooperate with the third one then? <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to ask that. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I, uh, I, I was on the scene by that time. That, that third movie was made during, uh, during my time. And uh, they had actually... Uh, the simple answer is money. Now, uh, he said that it would be an opportunity for him to show people that he wasn't that crazy redneck that he was in the other two uh, movies, and and he did. And also, if you look at the third one, he's not featured anywhere near as prominently because uh, mm-hmm. he, he didn't act like a nut. Uh, but uh, they wanted to, uh, and they they and they they had one. Joe at one point had claimed that he didn't pay people to be in movies because in a documentary, you're really not supposed to pay people. You know, maybe pay their expenses for an interview maybe, but he paid uh, lots of people and Mark included. And he got up in front of a bunch of people at a benefit and said, uh, yeah, we don't pay people. And I called him out on that and he walked it back. But yeah, I think more than, more than the need to exonerate himself or rehabilitate himself, I think there is with money. That's my opinion. It's such a it's such a fascinating case, um, and and Mark is is just a fascinating character, and his and his wife dies, and I think the worst thing of all, this has to be that somebody implicates him in his wife's death. So tell us about that. Tell well, us about the right. death, and tell us about the implication. Yeah, yeah, the implication, uh, and I think that really drove the rage that pushed him over the edge. Now, they actually ended up getting him in prison. Uh, he was he was angry beyond your beyond imagination, uh, and you uh, you can say that he opened himself to up to it, and he did. If he hadn't been in the second film, he wouldn't have had to deal with that. But um, he he did, and uh, you know he, he he tried in the in the film uh, and elsewhere to, to say like this, the, the KGB accused him on film of murdering his wife. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was a really, a really amazing thing for someone to do. They didn't, they didn't even know him. Uh, and they did it based on something Mary Leverett had written. Uh, and, but, uh, it, there was a full investigation. Mark insisted on an autopsy because he knew what people were going to think. Uh, but, uh, and I give in the book, uh, there's a section on Melissa's death and what the many things could have been that caused her death. You know, she was obese, she smoked, she was a drug user, uh, she, uh, she was completely decimated and grief stricken uh, to the loss of her son because, unlike Mark, you know, Christopher was a biological child and uh, she loved that. And you know, she she acted like any any mother would, and you know you can give up your life. And so anyway, she had a million things that could have killed her. Mark Byers would have been the what, why would he roll over in his bed after an afternoon nap and kill her? Uh, but they they didn't think of you know that. They just decided they were going to start shooting questions at him on screen so to plant the seed in other people's minds. And that's why to this day I don't forgive the KGB. I don't give a crap what they did to uh, to the West Memphis Three, but what they did to Mark Byers was cruel. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Now this, like I said, this is such a fascinating tale, but, and again, you don't sum it up in sort of saying, hey, listen, this is a cautionary tale, and this is what we need to, because we already, we already passed the effect, because now we have making of a murderer, which, again, so it's, uh, again, the same sort of effect with people like, and some of the same characters in Hollywood, Alec Baldwin just demanding, you know, right up to Obama, these people, they can think they can overturn things with the president, so... The thing is, is that as a cautionary tale, what would you say? Because you're the person that saw this, what, and you went through this entire time with things changing and perceptions changing, facts being revealed, and still your assessment. What's the cautionary tale here? I think the cautionary tale is, is age old and very simple. It's don't believe everything you see and hear. If you do your due diligence, and I was raised that way. I raised my kids that way. Do your due diligence and uh, don't take the first thing you get as, as gospel because, because it may not be. If people had done that in this case, who knows what would have happened? And I'm talking about the jury too. You know, I don't know what was in their minds, but uh, I would have to guess that they were predisposed against uh, the defendants. Uh, but, but, you know, and also we have uh, you have some things that you're not going to be able to avoid, like this crew in West Memphis at the police department. Um, you know, there were some good guys there. There were some talented guys there, but there was a lot of people who were not up to the task. Uh, they didn't know how to handle evidence. Uh, they, they, they didn't really know how to interview. So, so they talked to hundreds of people, but how many of them did they you know, disqualify by, by trying to uh, implicate them? So, uh, if, you, if this happens in West Memphis, Arkansas, it might be better if it happened in uh, Los Angeles. And that's what a lot of people said. And yet, what did they do in Los Angeles? You know, O.J. Simpson go, so. Was, um, if the police would have done this one basic, uh, this is my question, if police would have followed up by interviewing Terry Hobbs, if they would have just scratched that surface a little bit, would they have been so committed to the Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin theory to the point that they would have, again, well, let's face it, they questioned Miskelly with a lot of information brought to that interview, we'll say. All right. A lot of that came from Vicki Hutchinson. Right. She'd already talked to them and told them what Damien had said to her. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, Jesse was uh, he was predisposed uh, for sure. But um, the uh, it, you're right in, in that if it, the, I'm not going to speculate what would have happened, but I believe it would have been right. a lot different if they had talked to Terry Hobbs uh, like they were supposed to. Now he wasn't home. It wasn't a, an evil thing on their part. It was just really sloppy because they talked to Pam and uh, they let Pam talk for the both of them. And, you know, that might be okay if it's you and me and our neighbor, uh, but these are, you know, these are two victims and, and, and more often than not, they have something to do with the crime, especially in the death of a child. Uh, so for them to not interview him is inexcusable. And they have no excuse for it either. I mean, if you ask them today, they're like, oh, we just missed it. And they did. They just missed it. And that's, that's emblematic of how this whole investigation went. Like I said, there were some guys there that were very good, uh, and some guys not so much. 
Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this. And this is just uh, just a fascinating book and a fascinating perspective you get from, especially covering John Mark Byers because you you're in the middle of this maelstrom where he's in the eye of the storm here and things change completely. So it really is a, encompasses the entire trial and all of the hysteria and then the post-trial and, and like you say, a very profound and unprecedented movement in the way people were released from prison and the uh, the result, despite the legal decision. It was really how you could uh, transcend the legal courts in Arkansas with Hollywood and, the, and some rock musicians. So it's quite interesting yeah, you so, and, and also I wanted to ask if people are interested in contacting you do you have a website uh, do you do Facebook and so they might see some of the yeah, other material well, uh, I don't I no longer have a website um, uh, or blog but uh, they can contact me through the same way you did through the uh, the Facebook page for untying the knot great uh, is there a there was talk just before I let you go that you are following this book up with another book about this case. Is that true or no? No, that's definitely not true. <laughs> I, I did. You've had enough uh, of this. Yeah, I actually did start a uh, uh, a treatment back in the day uh, called Guilty as Sin, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I got out of it real fast and uh, I got I wanted to get back to my guitar. So, uh, right on. No more books. <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you very much, uh, Greg, for coming on and talking about your fine book, Untying the Knot, uh, John Mark Byers and the West Memphis Three. Thank you very much. Uh, It's been a pleasure. You're quite welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.